us to consider Saul for a second. If you're Saul, and you've seen the glorious light, and you've received an enormous new calling, and undergone this transformative conversion from destroyer of Jesus to disciple of Jesus, what would your expectations be as to what comes next? What would you expect the next step to be? If I'm Saul, I would expect spirit-filled miracles and great displays of power. I would expect conquering and converting mass amounts of Gentiles, since that's kind of what um, his calling was about. I would expect to win great debates against both Jew and Gentile alike. I would expect smooth sailing and comfortable success, victory after victory for the gospel. That's not exactly what happens, at least not mostly, and not yet. The first baby steps in Paul's progression as an apostle are not dominated by stories of power or success or victory. Rather, they're marked by rejection and mistrust and loneliness and attempts on his life. A lesser disciple with a lesser faith may have given up and turned their back on the light altogether. But these first few years of evangelism and ministry around the Holy Land, summarized in just a few short paragraphs, are foundational for turning Saul into Paul. These early hardships fail to crush Paul's determination to proclaim and glorify the Son of God to Jew and Gentile alike. You'll, you'll see that he endures much, but it doesn't stop him from his mission. Instead, I think we'll see how his early difficulties shape and inform his understanding of the glory that comes with faithfully enduring suffering. There are a lot of ups and downs in this passage, uh, outlining Paul's early years as an apostle. The downs are particularly attention-grabbing, I believe, but I think we'll come out with a, a lesson appropriate for the holiday that we're celebrating this weekend, appropriate for Thanksgiving. So let's read Acts 9, 19-31. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him, but Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the disciples and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on his way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Like I said, ups and downs. But before we go any further, I want to acknowledge two other passages in Scripture which flesh out this brief account and give us a deeper appreciation for what it already says. There are issues that pop up when we contrast these two new passages with the passage we just read, but I'm not going to go too deeply into them for three reasons. A, one, sorry, three reasons, you start with A. Three reasons. One, they are far from crucial for our understanding of what's going on. <laughs> We can understand what's going on here really well without these two passages. Two, they aren't 
the issues they present aren't so big that they call into question anything Luke is saying here. So everything Luke is saying is still true, even though there's issues with what gets brought up. And three, you've all got pumpkin pie to get home to and check on, and I don't want to screw that up for you, so I'm not going to go too in-depth. But I will touch on them, because they do add some depth to Acts 9. The passages that I refer to are Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians 11. So they're, they're like two really good Thanksgiving turkeys, Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians 11. I'll bring them out of the oven for a quick checkup, and then we'll put them back into roast for a while until we're ready to consume them. So they're there. They're baking. We'll get to them. We'll check on them. We'll take them out. We'll see how tasty they are and how much they add to our passage. And we'll put them back and store them away. Okay? Does that make sense? It's a really lame metaphor. Good. <laughs> anyway, first I'd like to introduce you to something that you will become very familiar with over the course of studying the journeys of Paul throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And Horst had said that this was a good idea. I thought it was a great idea too. So ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce to you the big map omissions. The purpose of the Big Map omissions is to make sense of the geography mentioned in Acts. Since only Darcy and Kathy, who aren't here today, but only Darcy and Kathy can claim to have first-person experience of any kind in this area of the world. So things like, where is Damascus? How far is it from Jerusalem? What is the capital of Arabia? What's a good fish and bagel place you can recommend in Caesarea? Why should I care about ancient cartography? All great questions that the Big Map omissions is here to help us answer. And so... Zooming in, we're going to zoom in on this portion of the Big Map omissions. We see Paul's movement in Acts 9, 19-31. It was just outside of Damascus. Here's Damascus. It was just outside of Damascus that he encountered the resurrected Jesus in the moment that would change Saul's life forever, not to mention the life of the entire church. It was in Damascus that he received his commissioning from the Holy Spirit with the help of Ananias, and was baptized, making him a member of the body of Christ. It was in Damascus that we had last seen Saul, where we left him when I did that creative reading on Ananias. Um, scales freshly fallen and newly ordained to proclaim Jesus' name to the Gentiles, their kings, and to the people of Israel, as it says in verse 15. So we have been in and around Damascus. And Saul, having had his transformative experience, having seen the light, literally, Saul wastes no time in trying to make an impact for his new lord. Whenever Saul involved himself in anything, whether it was studying to become a Pharisee and the leader of the Jews, or whether it was um, crushing the new movement of Jesus' proclaimers, or now as an apologist and evangelist for the Son of God, <clears throat> anything Saul did, he went all in. He didn't dip a toe into anything. And so he goes all in immediately with Jesus' stuff. He had only been, he had only encountered Jesus three, maybe four days earlier, and he's already going hard in the synagogues. By the way, this is the only occurrence in all of Acts where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. I don't know what that means, other than it was a powerful statement to make, especially a brand new believer like Saul. To claim that Jesus was the Son of God if you were a Jew was heresy. There is only one God. And some man who was crucified by the Romans could possibly be the Son of that God. So for Saul to proclaim this so quickly means he was all in. Blunt claims like this would get you killed. And so Saul was going all in. But Saul takes these new claims, despite the danger in proclaiming them, Saul takes them immediately to the synagogues of Damascus to begin debating on behalf of his new king, Jesus. The irony, of course, is that these are the very synagogues that Saul had been sent to on his previous mission of passion. 
With a commission from the high priest, Saul had been sent to sniff out believers of the way, chain them up, and extradite them to Jerusalem for trial, and for many of them, eventually, death. Now, however, he receives a similar commission under a supreme authority, the supreme authority of the highest of all high priests, Jesus Christ, to make disciples of the way and bring life, not death, to new believers. Rather than presenting extradition papers, he presents the Jewish scriptures and how they point to Jesus as the Son of God. A total 180. And this remarkable transition was not missed by his audience either. They took note. In the synagogues, where Paul was proclaiming Jesus, in the synagogues, there were many people who feared Saul, who knew he was coming, and were very afraid of his arrival. Well, now they are celebrating with him. He is now a friend, an ally. In the crowd also were those eager for Saul to arrive and cleanse their town of all these blasphemous rats running around causing trouble. They wanted Saul to get here so they could start kicking the, the Jesus followers out. And they were looking forward to that. And now they receive, instead of an ally, they receive an ally of these fiery, a fiery ally of, of these rats. He's one of the rats now. What a traitor. <clears throat> his reputation had preceded him, uh, but the news of his conversion was not yet common knowledge. And so everyone was totally baffled. Who is this? I thought this was, what's he doing? They're totally confused. Saul himself had witnessed the spirit-filled power of Stephen's testimony just prior to his death. Death. We remember that Saul was there holding the jackets. He was an eyewitness to everything that happened to Stephen, and he heard all that Stephen had to say. He witnessed the power that infused this backwoods young man. Who is this speaking with such power? He took note of that. Well, Saul now speaks the same message with the same authority as the man that he had participated in executing. And isn't that something? Like Stephen, the Holy Spirit's power was undeniable in Saul. All who encountered it were rendered speechless because of how powerfully he proclaimed Jesus with truth based in Scripture, just like Stephen. So Saul's first days as a new follower of Jesus were filled with an authority that shocked and disarmed everyone that he encountered. Okay, now it's time for our first turkey check. Galatians 1. Let's go to the oven and pull out Galatians 1. In Galatians 1, Saul insists with the strongest possible language. If you read, Saul, um, if you read Galatians 1, it's like, calm down, Saul. Like, we get it now. But to the Galatians, Saul had something very um, purposeful that he was debating. They were calling into question his apostleship. And so with the strongest possible language, Saul makes his apostleship clear the validation of his apostleship. And so he says, when God was pleased to reveal his son in me, so basically when I met Jesus, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before, before I was, but I went instead into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. The reason this is interesting, and the reason I brought this turkey out of the oven in the first place, is because our little account in Acts 9 mentions nothing about a trip to Arabia. It kind of makes it sound like he's in Damascus the whole time for a great number of days. Well, it turns out that great number of days was three years. And somewhere in those three years, he ventured out of the Roman Empire into Arabia, likely as a sort of spiritual retreat, kind of like Jesus did when he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Saul probably does a very similar thing to learn from Jesus and to learn from the scriptures. 
At some time, he returned to Damascus. And this is marked by arrows number one and two, kind of highlighted there in the blue circle, on the big map of missions. So he starts in Damascus, he goes out to Arabia, the wilderness, the desert, and he heads back. Luke doesn't mention that, but, but Saul mentions that. I'll get to why that's important in a little bit. If Saul's experience in powerfully proclaiming the Son of God in the synagogue is similar to Stephen's, so too is what happens to Saul upon returning to Damascus. The same thing that happened to Stephen almost happens to Saul, and that is what? Almost death. Persecution. His People want his life. They want him to pay with his life for his new beliefs. This is Saul's first taste of what Ananias had been told by Jesus Saul would have to endure, that he would have to endure much suffering for, for Jesus' name. That's what Jesus said to, to Ananias before Ananias went to Saul. This is Saul's first taste of that suffering. His powerful preaching had caught up with him. And now, after years of behaving like a rabid dog towards the church, Saul would now learn what it's like to be on the other end of that dog's bite. Well, nearly. He nearly gets bitten. Having heard of the plot on his life, Saul escapes through a friend's house. So they had houses that were built right in, kind of like um, Jericho with Rahab, this, um, who hid the spies. She had the scarlet flag out her window because her house was built into the walls. Well, this friend of Saul had a similar situation, a house that was built right into the walls with a window that they put him in a basket and lowered him down and he escaped. And the reason he couldn't go through the city gates was because there were spies there ready to kill him. And the reason they didn't come into the city to get him was because it was against Roman law for any non-Roman to commit capital punishment inside of the city of Damascus. So they had to wait outside the city gates so they could snatch him and assassinate him, slow his throat, kill him on the spot when nobody knew about it. Um, the persecutor now, Saul, had become the persecuted. He's getting his taste of persecution. There's a great quote from John Pollock who wrote, wrote a book, kind of like a biography of, of Paul, that I really enjoyed, or have been really enjoying. And his quote is, Paul, who had arrived in Damascus as the high priest representative, so coming into Damascus with great pomp and circumstance and power and authority, made his last exit from Damascus in a fish basket, helped by the very people he had come to hurt. So the great Saul is now lowered very low, lowered literally in a stinky fish basket, uh, helped by the people he had come to crush. I thought that was really powerful. And that leads us to put on the oven mitts and head back to the oven for turkey check number two. Uh, this time we'll pull out 2 Corinthians 11, 32-33, which says, In Damascus, the governor under King Herodus had the city of the Damascenes, I don't know if Damascenes, whatever, city of Damascus, guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. We're familiar with that story. Sounds like a total confirmation of Luke's account in verse 23 to 25 of Acts 9, doesn't it? Sounds like an exact replication of that account, right? Well, not quite. In Acts, who is it that watches the city gates in order to assassinate Saul? Go ahead and look if you want. This is a test. Who is it that wants to assassinate Saul? The Jews. It's the Jews who want to capture him and assassinate him. Well, here, it's not the Jews. In 2 Corinthians, Saul himself, and he would know, he was there, Saul declares it wasn't the Jews, but rather the king of Arabia, the king of Eridus, where he had been, well, governors of the king of Arabia, um, where he had just been visiting. They want him dead. 
it seems that when he went off to Arabia, remember in the first Turkey check, we found out he spent some time in Arabia. It seems he did some preaching there, and it seems that roused the anger of the king of Arabia, because they don't like Christians there either. And so they pursue him back to Damascus to kill him. One says it's Jews, one says it's Gentiles, the Arabians. So why the discrepancy? Well, I'm glad you asked. I think nobody actually asked. It tells us that everyone wanted him dead. I think both are equally true. It's quite likely that the Jews wanted to crush him. That makes sense from everything we know about the Jewish response to Christianity. Early Jewish response to Christianity. And it makes sense that Saul would know who was trying to kill him. He, he was there. He knows. And so it's likely that both are true. Probably Jews and Gentiles. Everyone wants to kill Saul. Could it be Jews that were in, in, uh, in Arabia? Slavery or in Arabia there? Could have been. One suggestion I heard is that because Arabia is outside of the Roman Empire, that they hired some Jews to, to serve as assassins since they couldn't go to Damascus. That was outside their boundaries of extradition. They, there was no legal right for them to be there, so they hired some Jews to go kill them on their behalf, in which case both would be true as well. That seems very likely. Um, whatever the case, Acts 9 tells us of a plot to kill Saul in which everyone was involved, except a few friends. But they were unsuccessful. It wasn't until he was lowered from a basket that he was delivered. And by the way, what Old Testament figure does that remind you of? Delivered from certain death at the hands of those who oppose the plans of God by slipping away in a basket. A man who, after being saved in a basket, becomes the chief spokesperson for God's chosen people. A man whose first attempt to redeem his people is met not with thankfulness, but with hostility. Moses. Yeah, I hear a few of you saying that sounds very much like Moses. Moses, his first attempt to save some Hebrews um, was met with scorn. What are you, you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And that's what gets Moses to flee into the desert. So it sounds an awful lot like Moses here, I, I think. I didn't read any commentaries about it, but that's what I thought of when I read it. And I think Luke wants us to make that connection as well. Moses was no ordinary baby floating down the Nile River. And this is no ordinary servant of Jesus being lowered in a basket. Both baskets, both basket cases. You think you can call Saul a basket case? Um, both basket cases are incredibly important, special leaders of God's people in a new way. And so, after three years of study and preparation and witnessing for Jesus, Saul finally gets his chance to head back to the big fig. Jerusalem. Called the Big Fig because Big Apple's already taken. By the way, I'm sorry for all the food metaphors. It's Thanksgiving. I'm sure you're already hungry enough. I don't, you don't need my help. But... Jerusalem was where Saul's heart was. Growing up in Tarsus, it's the one place he ever wanted to go to. And once he was there, he was accepted, he was beloved, he had power and authority. Jerusalem was home for Saul. Much more than Tarsus ever was. In Galatians, Galatians 1, which I mentioned earlier, Saul makes a big deal about the fact that he didn't go to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles right away. He wants, the reason he does this, he, he wants to make clear his credentials as an apostle. And to be a full-fledged, capital A apostle, you had to have teaching directly from Jesus. Like Peter, James, John, like those guys. And Saul came around several years after Jesus had been crucified. 
And so to make his case, he says, no, in those three years that I was wandering around in Arabia and in Damascus, I, I did receive teaching directly from Jesus. He says, I swear, I don't think he says I swear. He says, God knows that this is true. He's being very clear about this. He wants us to understand that he is a full-fledged apostle who learned everything directly from Jesus, apparently during his time in the desert. However, so he makes the argument, hey, I'm an apostle, capital A apostle, but despite his capital A apostleship, when he enters Jerusalem, he is not welcomed or greeted like a capital A apostle, right? And you can understand why the believers would be reluctant to accept Saul. You can understand their hesitation to believe him, saying he is a new man, right? Double agents were as real and treacherous then as they are today. Russian boat rigging, anyone? This is a man who was sworn to destroy the church. His reputation was built on his ruthlessness and his brutality. Not exactly someone you welcome back in without a background check, right? Many of the men and women who made up the remaining church in Jerusalem had experienced Saul's cruelty firsthand. They may have lost loved ones, had been crucified, executed, stoned to death, thrown in prison, directly because of Saul. Saul was the fire that caused the believers to spread throughout Galilee. He's the reason that so many people are wherever they are. He's the reason Philip ended up meeting an Ethiopian. They scattered because, largely, largely because of Saul. And now he's back. And many of those people who had endured that persecution, had scars to tell the tale of, they're not willing to accept him back right away. They're thinking he's a spy. He just wants to get in with Peter so he knows all the ins and outs and then he can really crush us once and for all. You can understand that, right? You can understand their hesitation. Forgiveness is one thing, but endangering yourself and your loved ones needlessly is another thing entirely. And so they're reluctant. Saul is therefore left in the unenviable position of absolute rejection. His former associates, the Sanhedrin, who had once been inspired by his zeal to crush the heretics, would know of his conversion and regard him as an absolute traitor. So he's not welcome with those people at all. He's the kind of person now that they want to destroy. Meanwhile, the group of people he desperately wants to join up with and hear first-hand accounts of Jesus from, they are justifiably doubtful and afraid of his dubious claims to being a new man. Jerusalem had been the place he had made such a renowned name for himself. Now, his name was shunned and scorned by the whole city. Everyone hates and rejects Saul. And oh, by the way, Luke casually mentions how some Greek Jews, you know, tried to kill him. Again, it's no big deal, just throws it in there. Oh, he debated some Greek Jews and they tried to kill him. It's like every other day for Saul, all his own death threats. Oh, hum, another day, another threat to your life. Just fleeing away from the one place on earth where you've ever felt your heart being truly called. He has to leave Jerusalem, um, head to Caesarea, and then take a boat back to Tarsus. That can't be crushingly sad, right? To leave the one place you've ever loved. And so, consulting the big map omissions, we step, see steps four and five, three as he goes to Jerusalem, then he goes to Caesarea, where he is, escapes back to Cilicia, Tarsus. We don't hear from Saul again for another 14 years. 14 years before he makes his way back to Jerusalem. Um, in those 14 years, he toils away in obscurity. 
working and proclaiming and certain. We know Saul. We know he didn't just do nothing, right? We know he would have tried to evangelize. Um, but it was 14 years he waited for his call uh, as apostle to the Gentiles to be fulfilled. That's a long time. Does it take that long for people to forget about his calling? I'm sure it would, yeah. I'm sure that played into it. I mean, Jesus knows what he's doing. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. So, yeah, having them wait so they can see that he really is who he said he was. That's a good point. And Moses, yeah, he spent his 40 years in the wilderness too, yeah. To be as high as you were, as Saul was, in authority and power, um, it often takes some crushing humiliation before you're ready to truly serve. You have to be lowered. And that happened for Moses. I believe it's happening for Saul as well. And so read in this way, Acts 9 is more than just a little crushing, more than just a little depressing. Especially when combined with those two turkeys I pulled out of the oven. And yes, I realize the turkey metaphor is it's time for it to be done. I think that's the last time I reference it. But the reason we pulled out and examined both Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians 11 is because each of these passages, and written by Saul himself, I should add, emphasize and strengthen something that Acts 9 is already communicating, and that's this. Acts 9 and Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians 11 are all communicating how challenging it was for Saul when he first became an apostle. It's hard to miss that, right? When we read Acts 9. Things did not go smoothly at first. He sees the light and is rewarded with assassination threats from Jews, according to Acts 9, and Gentiles, according to 2 Corinthians 11. Everyone wants to kill him immediately in Damascus, well, within those three years. Along with a lonely desert pilgrimage, Galatians 1, it must have been very lonely for him, not to mention fear and rejection from his new brothers and sisters before being rushed away from home under fear of death at the hands of those he brought truth and life to. It's pretty bleak. Not much to be thankful for if you're Saul of Tarsus, don't you think? Well, buddy, you got it wrong. That is never the attitude that we get from Saul of Tarsus. He never has an attitude of unthankfulness. Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the evangelist. And in, if you read Paul's letters... He talks about his suffering all the time. And it's never with a woe is me sort of attitude. It's a great is God sort of attitude. In fact, for all the downs that he experiences, Saul experiences tremendous ups as well. For example, although he had to flee in a basket under cover of night, Saul's time in Damascus was fruitful. It was there he first learned of the Spirit's power in proclaiming truth, and he put it into action. He baffled his opponents and left them unable to refute the authoritative new truth that he bore it's in Damascus that he got his first practice as a powerful proclaimer of truth. That's a gift that Saul would carry with him everywhere he went, from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And moreover, though we can focus on the assassination attempt, let's not miss something else beautiful about verse 25. Saul had followers in Damascus, people who, when he was in trouble, took care of him. He had friends that saved his life. So his three years in Damascus was fruitful. His preaching was effective. He made followers for Jesus. And it was the love and care of those followers that saved his life. As for the loneliness in the desert, there was never any loneliness there at all. Like Jesus' 40 days and nights, the assumption we can glean from Saul's own words in Galatians tell us that those lonely days were filled with time spent in the glorious presence of Jesus, where he learned directly from Jesus in a way that should make us all jealous, quite frankly. Like some Old Testament prophet wandering the wilderness, he spent that time soaking up as much of Jesus as he could from Scripture and from Jesus himself. 
It's the picture we're given in Galatians 1. Now, about that return to Jerusalem. Sure, at first everyone rejected and feared him or else wanted him dead. It wasn't pretty. Everyone, that is, except for one very special friend, that highly esteemed son of encouragement who we've met before, Barnabas. Barnabas is a hero. Barnabas took the risk of befriending Saul. And every relationship that we start is always a risk. There's always risk involved in building a relationship, but especially with somebody who had previously tried to murder you. <clears throat> so Barnabas took a risk in befriending Saul and an even bigger risk in presenting him to Peter. But that risk was clearly rooted in, in, in Barnabas's belief in the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. There's no one too beyond the redemption of Jesus to be made new. Even bloodthirsty antichrists like Saul of Tarsus could be made new. Barnabas, like Ananias before him, was faithful to trust both Jesus and this man who had encountered Jesus. That takes guts, that takes faith to believe that Jesus can redeem even Saul of Tarsus. Because of Barnabas, Saul was welcomed into the family of God, and because Saul was welcomed into the family of God, all of us filthy Gentiles are now also welcomed into the family of God. So thank you, Barnabas. And as for leaving Jerusalem and returning to obscurity in his hometown, that must have hurt. He loved Jerusalem. And it must have hurt to get on that boat at Caesarea and sail off to Tarsus. Tarsus. Tarsus is great, but it's no Jerusalem. Saul was starving for more knowledge. He spent 15 days going everywhere with Peter so Peter could tell him all he knew. All the sayings, all the miracles, all the teachings of Jesus. Saul was hungry for as much of that first-hand eyewitness stuff as he could get. And now that was ripped away from him. But he took those teachings and he returned to Tarsus. Um, and though we have no written record of Saul's time in those 14 years, you better believe he was doing stuff. He's always doing stuff. He didn't take a 14-year break from evangelism. Have you met this guy? Not a chance. And so a little humility and obscurity was good for him. His chance for glory was coming. What does this all mean? I, I mentioned at the beginning how a lesser person with a lesser faith would encounter hardships like this and turn their back on the light. But there would be so much to miss if Saul had done that. If at the first attempt on his life he said, forget it, this is not worth this. Can you imagine if Saul had given up right away? We may not even be allowed to be believers. I mean, Jesus would have found out another way, but there's so much he would have missed. With endurance comes growth and faith. With suffering comes a deeper understanding of our Lord Jesus. As Paul himself wrote in Philippians 1, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew this right away. Within the first years of following Jesus, people were trying to kill him. And he says, you know what? If I die, it's okay. If I die, it's okay. I get to go be with Jesus. If I live, great. If I die, fantastic. In Philippians 2, because that was Philippians 1, here's Philippians 2, he says, I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Labor, yes. He worked hard and he suffered. And everything he did was for Jesus Christ, not for himself. And none of that was in vain. It all was effective. Every little teaching, every letter he wrote, every act of love landed. It met with a heart that was ready to hear it. 
Sometimes it was met with fierce opposition. That's true too. But even if his life was poured out like a drink offering, he will rejoice. He will be glad. He will be thankful. And in Philippians 3, What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Lost, even potentially his life. He's lost all, he flees in a basket. You think he brought a couple suitcases with him? No, he had nothing. But he considers that loss worth it. That was all garbage, he says. It was all rubbish. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Every time he suffers and endures, his strength is built, and he's a little closer to his goal. That's how Saul sees it. All of this suffering just gets him closer to his goal. And most famously of all, the same Saul who endured assassination attempts and rejection and abuse and humiliation and scorn and loneliness is the same Saul who declares in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. A lot of like athletes quote that. And a lot of people quoted for totally trivial, unimportant things. That is a total misreading of this. Saul isn't saying, I can do all things through him who gives me strength from a place of strength. He's saying it from a position of weakness. That he's endured all of it, and he's content. He's okay to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's fine, whatever happens. Because he does all of this. Endure assassination attempts. Endure humiliation and scorn and rejection. He endures all of that. Because Jesus gives him strength. When he is weakest, he is strongest. And finally, later on in Philippians 4, he says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, Jesus would say, a peace that only I, only the Holy Spirit can offer. The world cannot offer this peace. It's a peace that transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't worry. People will hate you because of Jesus' name. They will reject you. They will want nothing to do with you. In places in the world more than any other time in history, people will murder you and your family because of his name. Don't be afraid. Don't fret about it. Instead, rejoice. Don't be anxious, but present your prayers with thanksgiving, and you will experience peace. And so this is my encouragement to each of us on Thanksgiving Sunday. Are you a brand new Christian with a brand new faith? I don't think anybody here qualifies as that. But if you are a brand new Christian with a brand new faith, then you are just like Saul in Acts 9. That's exactly what he was, a brand new Christian with a brand new faith. You can expect hard things to come at you because of Jesus Christ. Lots of Christians, they slip into Christianity and think, hey, easy street. I got Jesus with me. Nothing bad's going to happen. The exact opposite is how it goes. We need to be faithful to proclaim that. When you are a new Christian, that's when you will experience the fiercest persecution, often. Endure these difficult things with thankfulness. Rejoice and pray and be content. You can do it. You can do this. You have enough faith, even as you are. You are loved enough. He is with you. You can do it. Are you toiling away in obscurity in some corner of the kingdom here in Clyde? Are you toiling away in obscurity, wondering when the Holy Spirit will do big things in you? That's Saul as well. 
14 years in Tarsus, Tarsus is very far away from the center of all the action, toiling away in obscurity. Well, don't just wait. Get to work. Do something. Do good. It, no act of goodness or love is ever done in obscurity. He sees it all, and, and he values it all, every little bit. He is already doing powerful things in you. Whatever small thing you are doing for him, he sees it. He is doing those powerful things in you. And so be thankful, rejoice, and pray, and be content. The, me the best may be yet to come. Keep looking forward and upward. Are you wrestling with a pain that won't leave you? Maybe a relational pain. Maybe grieving someone you care about, or rejection from loved ones, or an inability to connect with those you want to connect with, or outright scorn and abuse from someone in your life. Are you experiencing pain, relational pain? Saul knows that feeling too. He knows it very well. More than Saul knows that feeling, Jesus knows that feeling. It may be hard when you're lonely and people you love turn their backs on you. It may be hard to be thankful, but be thankful. Rejoice and pray and be content. You are not forgotten by your Lord. Other people may devalue you, he does not. In fact, if this is you, then you are especially blessed. If you are meek or poor or mourning or hungry or persecuted, then you are exactly who Jesus has his eye on. The kingdom has come for you. If you weep, you will be comforted. If you are meek and small, obscure, then you'll be given the world belongs to you. You will inherit the earth if you are a small servant. You are especially blessed and the kingdom belongs to you, so be thankful. Rejoice and pray and be content. Peace will be yours. Did I say that enough? Be thankful. Rejoice and pray and be content. That should be our first response. And I know I have a lot to learn in that area too. The early ministry of Saul is full of failure and pain, but there is a happy ending as verse 31 makes clear. Let's read verse 31 again real quick. It says, The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. There's a happy ending. Despite all Saul's wild ups and downs, there's a happy ending. There is peace. There is strength. There is growth. The Holy Spirit is alive and well. Saul had so much to be thankful for. His work was just the beginning. His glory was just ahead. His Savior was just beside him. Acts 9 is a reminder that no one is too far gone to be redeemed. And no situation is outside of our ability to give thanks. So let's pray. Let's give thanks. Father, in all things, whatever difficulties and challenges and hardships and suffering we feel or have or experience, I pray that we would take them to you, that we would bring them to you in prayer and with thanksgiving. Understand the words of Paul when he says, I am content. I can do all things through you, Jesus, who gives me strength. And we, we proclaim that and we believe that. We know that you are doing powerful things in us. We know that you are strengthening us, Jesus. Even though we are weak and small and obscure, you are here empowering us to do good things for your kingdom. And we praise you and we are thankful for your presence. Help us to be people marked not by trudging along, serving you out of um, obligation, but help us to be fueled by thanksgiving, contentment, and, and a love for all that you're doing in us. Father, we thank you for the stories of Saul. 
all his ups and downs. And in those ups and downs, we see ourselves. And more importantly, we see you. Thank you for being there with us, no matter what we experience. We praise you in the name of Jesus, Father, for your presence with us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your guidance in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving, my brothers and sisters. Have a great turkey. Show great life.